0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, Trey and I talk about the current market conditions. We discuss why we haven't seen the market top despite the challenges the world is facing due to the pandemic. We also talk about why billionaire Stanley Drunkenmiller says that this is the market that is most difficult ever to write a playbook for, and why we expect emerging markets and commodities to perform well, and much, much more. You don't want to miss out on this one. Let's jump to it.
0: you are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Brodersen. I'm always excited about doing these episodes, but now more than ever, because I'm sitting here Alongside my co host, Trey Lockerbie. Trey, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great, Stig. I'm really happy to be here. There is so much going on in the markets today, and I think we should
1: uh, dig in as much as we can because there's a lot to cover. And so, the way that Trey and I have talked about this episode is we're going to have three segments. The first one is just like an overall look at the current market conditions. We're going to talk in all kinds of directions on that one. So, just talking about what we're seeing in the market right now what's interesting to us and how we position ourselves. And then in the second part, we'll be talking about our web application that we have on the investorspodcast.com. It's called Tap Finance. We're going to talk about some of the tools that we have and what that signals to us in the market and how we should position ourselves. And then at the very end, we have a question from Sean from the audience, and it's about having the right portfolio for the right market conditions. But let's just kick this episode off. One of the things that you know, I can't help but think about is, are we in a new normal for the stock market? And I guess every time I hear the term like new normal, it's just painful to say. <laughs> you know, Every time you say it, you just know something's go gone wrong shortly after. And we've seen the stock market just explode in 2020. Despite the pandemic, the Dow Jones industrial average has generated a 9.7 total return, including dividends. And that is trailing the return for the S&P 500. Again, far behind Nasdaq, doing 45%. And so Trey and I—we're sitting here mid-February, and the S&P 500 is up 4%. The Nasdaq is up almost 8%. And you know, I just can't help but think, like, how long can this go on? And so, if we look at the most obvious explanation of why all this is happening, we have to talk about the low interest rates and the expansion of the money supply. And what's interesting is that billionaire Rydalio has said that given the current interest rate levels, he wouldn't be surprised if we in the foreseeable future would see stock markets trading around 50 times earnings. And he wouldn't find anything weird about that if you only compare stocks and bonds. And just as a reference, right now, the S&P 500 is trading at almost 40 times earnings, and the PE is 35%. The PE taking into account inflation and normalized earnings. So during those market conditions, you generally don't want to hold cash in your portfolio simply because it's being debased at a relatively high rate at the moment. And what I also want to say is because of these low interest rates, I know we always keep talking about those interest rates, but it's simply because they just change the entire dynamic for all asset classes. Whenever we have a low interest rate, we can also use a low interest rate for the future cash flows, clearly not zero for math reasons. And a very low discount rate just leads to very high asset prices. And so if you consider a stock pick like Spotify, for instance, a stock we talked about before here on the show, they don't make a lot of money today, but it's expected to do so in the future, years from now. So those cash flows are now worth relatively more than the cash flows in the short term because we're just using a low interest rate. Again, they're not worth more than cash flows today, but relative terms, if we had a higher interest rate, that would be different. So this is just a very different environment that we're coming from compared to the recent decades. But enough about, you know, how I'm seeing the current market conditions. I want to throw it over to you, Trey, and, and sort of like what are you seeing right now?
2: So I'm going to quote Stan Drunkenmiller here because I think he summed it up the best. He basically said that this is the craziest cocktail he's ever seen in his career and probably the most difficult time to develop a playbook of how to navigate this. My thesis kind of summed up is related to the old joke about don't fight the Fed. I think that is still very true today. And I think we're going to phase into a new era of not fighting the fiscal instead. So I want to talk about that a little bit. But first, I'd like to kind of take a step back and take a 40,000-foot view of what's going on in my opinion. So the first place I like to start is typically with the total market cap to GDP ratio. This is otherwise known as the Buffett indicator. The ratio is currently at 194.8%, so almost 195%, meaning that the market cap of the entire stock market in the US is 195% higher than our current country's GDP. This is the highest it has ever been after even peaking in 2000 at 142%. So you might be hearing that and thinking, wow, the market is incredibly overvalued, but Going back to Stig's point that he just highlighted, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio, the CAPE ratio, also known as the Schiller PE ratio, still has not matched its peak from the dot-com crash where it was around 45. And like you said, Stig, it's only sitting around 35. So in other words, there's potential for it to increase at least 30% from where it is now. So that's happening. And then meanwhile, our government has increased its debt by 170% in the last 12 years, and the money supply has expanded fourfold over the same period. So there's just an unprecedented environment to invest in right now. I want to highlight just a couple of other points that have happened since COVID began last year. And a good place to start is with the US dollar, which has dropped around 10%, its lowest level since 2018. In addition to that, US corporate debt is up now 10.5 trillion. And usually corporate debt goes down during recession as companies kind of reliquify, but actually it's increased during the COVID crash, even while corporate profits are down 18%. So what I kind of want to do here, Stig, is walk people through a little bit my framework. And we talk a lot about this on the show, but I kind of want to just walk the dog a little bit on it because I think for the listener, they might be struggling to piece all of this together and say what does this all mean? And you hear a lot about the Fed and what they're going to do moving forward. So if we take a look at interest rates right now, the nominal 10-year for example is at 1.09% and the PCE is at 1.87 and the CPI is 1.4. So the inflation indicators essentially. That means that the real 10-year rate is negative. It's now negative 1.02% and that is important because basically, all of the stimulus that we've been talking about just now is expected to lead into inflation to some degree. No one knows how much or when, but people are talking a lot about it working its way into the market, especially with this new stimulus package of $1.9 trillion that's about to hit the market. The expectation is that all of the stimulus money is going to continue to trickle down into the mainstream economy and eventually start leading to inflation. We can talk about how to define inflation, right? But as far as typical goods and services go, we do expect it to start growing. And the question is, what is going to be the Fed's response to that? The Fed could continue to print money, do quantitative easing, and buy these government bonds back off the market, which would artificially keep the interest rates low, or they can not do that and let inflation rise, which means that bond interest rates will rise. And if that happens, I think a couple of things happen. So a common opinion about this is that the Fed can't afford to let the interest rates rise. So the expectation I think is weighted a little bit more towards the fact that they're probably going to print more money, probably going to buy back more bonds and keep these interest rates artificially low, which means the real rate is going to keep or is going to continue to stay probably at a negative number, which means that commodities might perform really well moving forward over the next few years. And commodities, interestingly enough, just broke out a downward trend line going back to 2008. So they're starting to kind of revamp a little bit. So my expectation is that commodities are going to continue to perform well. I also think that, I don't think we've seen the top of this market yet.
1: And going back to one of these things you said that before, Trey, you know, you compared this to 2000 with the Duncom bubble. And it's hard to say, like, with just using the Sheila P as an example, being 35, back then it was 45. Is that any indicator of where we are? I want to say that this situation is very different in the sense that the interest rate was just very different in 2000. And still, it went up to 45. Like, we're seeing something very, very different right now. And I have a hard time wrapping my head around whether or not this is a new normal. And again, Time is infinite, <laughs> so let's be careful about saying what a new normal is. But Reddellio is right, and Trey, you, you just talked about it before, you know, negative real returns on government bonds. And yes, we can always talk about how to define inflation, but you know, this just call it zero percent. Just be generous and say zero percent return. Well, if you get a zero percent in bonds, and that's one, how do you want to preserve your wealth? If you're afraid of inflation, equities is just not a way of generating cash flow. It's also a way of protecting yourself against inflation. So these are. Just unprecedented times. It's so interesting to see what's going to happen. And it sort of like takes me to one of the other points I wanted to talk about here with the current market conditions. The U.S, no surprise, it just seems very, very expensive right now. And of course, again, this is due to the low interest rate levels. You can even then compare to Europe that at least to me, doesn't look as expensive right now, and we have negative rates here in Europe. So. Right now, I'm not looking to invest that much in the US. I have some positions in the US, but not a lot, especially not compared to what I used to have. Where I do see opportunities in the market, and for those of you who have been following what I've been doing in the previous current market conditions and the mastermind episodes, I've talked a lot about looking internationally. And right now, I find valuations in emerging markets more appealing. I wouldn't say I find them very appealing, but again, you have to compare this to the opportunity cost. And if your opportunity cost is the S&P 500 right now, well, then to me, emerging markets looks more interesting. And they do that for a few different reasons. They do that because they are trading at just more attractive levels, but also because it's a way for me to diversify my portfolio. So let's talk about how they have performed in the past. If we look at the emerging markets, and let's talk about how to define emerging markets. Well, most ETF providers would place emerging markets the primary markets as China, Taiwan, India, Brazil, and South Africa in that order. It is a bit different like whether you go to like Vanguard or BlackRock or whoever you go to, but like more or less there is this consensus that those are the main emerging markets. And if you look at how they perform, you know from 2000 2009, emerging markets did 9.8%, whereas the S&P 500 did 0.1%. And that's also known as the lost decade. But then from 2010 to 2019, emerging markets yielded 3.7%, whereas the S&P 500 did 13.5%. So I just wanted to mention that to really show that this is also a diversification play. Like, yes, perhaps I would agree with you, Trey, like you mentioned before. Perhaps this stock market hasn't seen this top yet. You know, it's it's difficult to try and guess what the stock market is going to do in the short term, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either if this just continues for some time. But I want to take some tips off the table and start investing in other markets. Cause I don't know how long this would go on in the States. Going to emerging markets, if you're a bit more adventurous than I am, perhaps you want to go to the very cheapest markets. That would be something like Russia, Turkey. I'm not that adventurous. It's a little too exciting for me, so. The way I'm playing it is that I focused and invested in a broad basket of emerging markets countries. So it's not a specific play on countries per se. It's more like a basket of countries.
2: Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that, Stig. I just want to highlight, though, that you have to honor your circle of competence at the end of the day. And I just spoke with Joel Greenblatt about this, and it was a great reminder that you know, he's very US centric, and that's because he really understands corporate structures and the laws here in the US. And I think it can be beneficial to allocate some of your portfolio globally. I no doubt think that that's a great strategy. Personally, though, it's not really within my circle of competence. I do think though, just going back to what Stanley Drunkenmiller was talking about, that Asia in particular seems to be, of all the markets, probably a pretty good one, mainly because if you compare their response to the virus to the US, it's drastically different. I mean, China, for example, hasn't even increased their M2 supply while ours has gone up in 25% or less you know, in related to GDP. And then additionally, China has practically defeated the virus. So they are poised for, I would think, a much stronger recovery, a much stronger currency, and I think a much stronger growth rate over the, at least the next couple of years.
1: Again, not to go into a long discussion about inflation. I think we've done that multiple times here on the show, but like we do see a lot of money printing going on right now in, in the States. And you started out, Trey, by talking about 10% depreciation in the US dollar compared to a basket of other currencies. And it's just, you know, I don't know whenever this will continue. And again, I do want to say like, whenever you do make those currency baskets, especially compared to if you look at the US, they primarily compare it to the euro. So you can always make the argument is the, US dollar not performing well? Is it because the euro is just strong? But we print as much money as we possibly can here in Europe too. So it just seems to be to some extent like a race to the bottom. And one of the things I really like about emerging markets, despite all the bad things you can say about emerging markets and political instability and all that, is really that you don't, at least right now, don't have the same amount of money printing. And even if we would see that happening, it might be nice to have a sort of diversification in your fiat currencies. I don't, it's not like I see dollar breaking down or anything like that, or for that happening to the euro at all, but I do see a lot of debasement in the horizon. So I kind of like this as an inflation play too, and a currency play. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting, from finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest stay. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called MAKA. Meka is an AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at meka.com. That's m e y k a.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable, heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at landroverusa.com. That's
2: landroverusa.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, and it's got sort of a positive or negative feedback loop, however you want to talk about it or view it, mainly because, you know, as our dollar depreciates, we're essentially mercantilely. Turning these countries like China into a mercantile country, and so they've got already a current account surplus, and that's just going to continue as you know we continue to drive more of the economy back to them because of the currency's weakening.
1: If I can piggyback a bit on that, I wanted to talk about the concept of resulting, and we spoke with Andy Duke back on episode two hundred and thirty-one. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And we talked about how whenever we make decisions, and, and she specifically mentioned poker, she used to be a poker player, but you know, she, she also said, this is the same with your portfolio. This is the same as whatever you're doing in your life. Think about running this experiment, whatever you want to call it. Think about having this scenario a million times, and that's how you're supposed to position yourself. So if you have, and this might just be a silly example, but if you can be, let's say you have the example of a smoker and a non-smoker and then the non-smoker would be the person getting lung cancer. Some people would take that and say, well, it doesn't matter if you smoke or not, because you know, even the person who's not smoking would get lung cancer. And my dad, he's been smoking all his life, he doesn't have lung cancer. But then obviously, if you ran that situation a million times with the same probabilities, clear the person who's smoking would get lung cancer. And this is just one of the things that I'm thinking about right now. In these current market conditions, you know, I get asked a lot, and I'm sure the same for you, Trey. A lot of people from audience are asking, so what are you doing right now? And what I would not be susceptible to is too much resulting. I really want to focus on what if this happened a million times? And that's whenever Rydalio comes in, he talks about, you, know, you need to diversify different currencies, different asset classes and different countries. And I definitely think that's the right approach right now. And just one piece of action that I've taken here recently, I tend to be a slow learner whenever it comes to you know, following my own guidance, but I, I've sold my position in Spotify. I brought up Spotify, I think it was back in episode 299. This was the Q2 mastermind meeting. And since then, I made a decent 65% return on that. Since then, you can say it's been a bad decision, it's continued running up. So I don't know if I, I really phrase this as a good decision or a bad decision, But my point about this saying was that I made that decision because I wanted to diversify more, but also because I was thinking about running this scenario a million times. I don't know what specifically is going to happen with Spotify. And without going too much into the specific stock pick, you know, I I could talk about what I expected to happen with the churn rate of the listeners, what I expected to happen with the gross margins. It just really hasn't materialized the way that Apple has gone into the market and Amazon made changes in the podcast market, I was just like, no, this is just not for me. And who knows who's going to prevail in the music and podcast space. Spotify might cross all of them and you can rightfully point and laugh at me. But the point I wanted to make with this is not whether what's going to happen in the podcast market or the music market is let's run this a million times and what's going to happen. And I think that going out of this, and I don't know whenever you know this area that you referred to before, Stan Duncan called the craziest market or whatnot he ever experienced. I don't know whenever you can officially say, now that has ended. But I think that coming out of it, there would be a lot of people saying, oh, X Y C was obvious to me, so that's why I did XYC And you can see how I met 10x of my portfolio. I would say that in this type of scenario, think about, again, doing this a million times and say, be humble and say, I don't know what's going to happen. I might not capture the greatest of all upsides by investing in, you know, this particular security. But I just want to be humble and then just protect my downside. Like really, really protect your downside. Diversify into taking this from a Dalio into different currencies, different countries, and different asset classes. That's really like my gospel right now going into these mug conditions.
2: Well, you know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so I agree with you that I wouldn't necessarily just compare today's market with 2000 and the run up with the dot-com bubble, but I do see another roadmap in which it could slightly rhyme with that. And it kind of goes into what I was talking about with the stimulus and how it's going to work its way into the economy. Because there's three really amazing and unique, I think, situations sort of playing out from the stimulus. So for example, one is that household finances might be in the best shape they've ever been in ever which might sound crazy to some folks because obviously with something like the covid crash and the recession we've been in in history you would think that that would be the opposite but in fact personal income is actually up over 500 billion dollars which is even up a trillion dollars from 2 years ago a lot of the surge came from the stimulus packet the stimulus payments and unemployment benefits but private wages and salaries are back at a new high so our average hourly earnings and weekly earnings. And on top of that, household debt payments are down 1.5%, which is the lowest it's been in 40 years. And this kind of makes sense, right? Because if you get all this stimulus money, especially the unemployment benefits, but you've got nowhere to go and nowhere to spend it on, I mean, restaurants haven't even been open in the last six months in most places. So what do you do with that money? Well, you probably pay down your debt. So a lot of the households in the US are sitting on lower debt than they've been in the last 40 years. And if you're not paying down debt, you're probably saving that money. right? So savings has increased to levels not seen since the 1970s, which makes sense as well because people are earning good pay and not able to spend it. So I think all of this said, you've got probably the largest amount of hint-up demand probably since the 1920s. And so I could see as the vaccines start to roll out in the next six months, which are already doing now, and people are able to get back into the economy, they've got more money than ever to do so. And then you're going to start seeing a lot of these companies that haven't even been earning profits, that's whose stock prices are soaring, they're going to start earning more profits, which I just think is this positive feedback loop that's going to grow the stock market at least much higher. So you know, at the same time with you, Stig, I say all that, and this is not an uncommon narrative, right? You've heard this probably from other folks. And that in itself, the contrarian in me is squeamish a little bit because the more I hear about something, I'm like, okay, well, probably the opposite is about to happen. right? But there's one other dynamic I also just want to touch on because I do think this was somewhat of a groundbreaking event. And that is the rise of retail raiders is what I'm calling them. But basically, you've heard about the Reddit communities that are banding together to short squeeze stocks like GameStop. That. May have just felt like a flash in the pan and even old news by now. But I don't think we've seen the end of that. And I mean, what we saw is basically the empowerment of the retail trader in ways that we've never seen before. And since people are sitting at home, not working, or even at least working remotely and potentially having more money than ever and looking to put that money somewhere, a lot of people are picking up stock investing, stock trading, speculating for the first time ever. And, you know, if you look at charts about call options, for example, it's incredible. It's going parabolic. I mean, people are jumping into these options, I hope intelligently, but it remains to be seen. But the point is, the adoption of this is probably higher than it's ever been. And I think that's only increasing, especially as these retail raters are empowered with more money and seeing the results from this. I mean, basically, the power of banding together and putting that into individual stocks. So I think that's just a further dynamic that is very new to this market and probably unlike anything we've seen before.
1: All right. Let's transition into the second segment of the show where the topic is TIP finance. So TIP finance was something that Preston and I originally created because we wanted a tool that could help us in our own stock investing decisions. And then a bunch of stuff happened and Now, we're not just only looking at equities, we're looking at all kinds of asset classes because of what's happening right now. But to me, equities has always been my home. Like That's always where I revert to. still have around 60% of my portfolio in equities right now. And one of the things that I always find very interesting in TP Finance is the filter we have that shows you the cheapest large, mid, and small cap stocks. And I always find that very valuable for me whenever I start my research. And what you see right now is that where there could potentially be value is in a lot of financial companies. Those are the companies that the filter finds to be the cheapest compared to their earnings. And you might say that you're not surprised by that. Financial companies have been unloved for a long time for a number of reasons. You can even say that they've been unloved since 2008 due to the systematic issue that they've been in the financial sector. Also, capital requirements for banks today makes it much harder for them to make the same amount of money. Simply because they can't leverage as much as before. They still need to keep more of the cash on the balance sheet. And then the low interest rate is typically not beneficial for banks. And like we talked about so far, like this is just a a low environment. Banks used to have more than 80% of interest income. Now, for instance, Bank of America, it's 50 50. So they're transitioning away from having interest rate income to the same extent as before. Perhaps they're also feeling that we are some sort of in a new normal. But also one of the reasons why you see all these financial companies being so cheap, at least compared to the rest of the market, is that financials are really set up for major disruption. Like all the things that's happening in fintech these days, a lot of the old big banks, it just doesn't seem as appealing to most people as they used to be. And I want to say that the way I decided to utilize the filter is to invest in one of those old banks, you know, one of those non-interesting banks, at least according to the market specifically, I invested in Bank of America. I pitched that back in the last current market conditions in episode 316, and outlined my investment thesis of that in that episode back then. At the time, it was trading around $24. Now it's trading at $33, and I'm still sticking to my investment thesis of intrinsic value between $40 and $50. So I'm holding on. All of that being said, in the bull market, everyone seems to be a genius. So (laughs) please don't take that for more than it is. And we have seen a very nice run-up in banking, but as we talked about here before, we've really seen a run-up in more or less all kinds of asset classes these days. Currently, the only sector that is more unloved than financials, that's energy, which is quite interesting. So if you're really a big believer in mean reversion, not just for the financial industry, but also in energy, you can invest in an ETF called XLE which is a major energy ETF with more than $30 billion under management. It is only 0.13% in expense ratio.
3: I just want to
2: highlight too, Stig, that on the the filters that we have on the TIP finance tool also include a momentum status. And typically, if I were looking at this, especially with banking, which to be honest with you really scares me as as an industry, but I guess that's sort of the point, right? You're seeing high yield, but you're also seeing the price momentum turn green on a lot of these picks, which I think is an interesting thing to point out because you know typically with things this cheap and the secular trends we're seeing, I would kind of assume that with the banks that aren't able to adapt to the new economy might be in serious trouble and could become value traps of some degree. But the momentum, I think, is just a bit of a a hedge against that if you're adding these to your portfolio.
1: I think you're right, Trey momentum is definitely something to take into account. I tend not to focus too much on momentum as probably as much as I should. At heart, I'm a value investor and I really I want to read the financial statements and see like, how do I get bank for my buck. I don't always look at the stock performance of the particular stock. But I do want to say that whenever I look at the banking sector, the banks that I see most ripe for disruption are the smaller banks simply because of what's coming in here with fintech. There will be a lot of disruption, even for the bigger banks. But even so, the bigger banks are, to a large extent, still on the forefront of this development, and they are such a core part of the infrastructure that I would be highly surprised if they would be completely left out of the disruption that we're seeing right now, in a positive sense, that is. And I think the best example I can give you is what happened with Visa and Mastercard. Like we all talked about, the disruption that were happening with payments, and here PayPal, the biggest disruptor, would then come in and say, "Well, we probably have to use the Mastercard network." Sort of like to be set up. And so I think that's a very important thing to include. If you look at the big three banks, I think they would benefit from it. Or even in my bear case, they won't be as disrupted as some of the regional banks. I think the regional banks are really in for some hard times. And talking a bit more about what I see in the TIP finance replication, I also wanted to highlight that we now have a new international filter. As you can tell, I always talk about investing in international markets. So we finally did something about it and now you can see the valuations of the different markets in there. You have the cheapest markets, Russia, Turkey, Poland, they're priced into something along the lines of a 14 to 17% per turn. But again, you have a high local currency risk. So this is something that's in local currency which probably not especially for Russia, Turkey. It's not something that I would be again, it's probably too bit exciting for me. But if you're really just hunting for value, and if you see this differently, it could be something that you wanted to invest in. Like you mentioned before, one of the worries I have right now is holding too much in US dollar. This might be different for you. Like if you live in the States and you, know, you shop in the States and you get your income in, in US dollars, it might be different for you. I have a lot of my cost in other currencies than US dollar, but I get my income in US dollars. So I just don't want to hold too many US dollars right now. So investing internationally, again, is, is a way to diversify into different currencies. And another way to use that filter is to look at high-growth markets. So I would say that a market like India is very interesting right now, but I don't want to drag John too much about the international markets. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm buying into an entire basket of emerging funds, and I'm using the filter here to figure out like, where do I see value. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the US, Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at briggs rileycom That's briggs rileycom All
1: right, back to the show.
2: Dig, so I'm curious what you think, especially with the financial sector, about Buffett decreasing his allocation to banks in general over the last year. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's uh, is really interesting. I do want to say like as a caveat to that, that he has chosen a winner, and that is Bank of America. So he has sold his stake, for instance, in Wells Fargo. And, and for everyone who's been following Buffett, he's been praising Wells Fargo for I don't know how many years. And he sold his stake. I want to say he sold his stake in J.P. Morgan, too.
2: Yeah, he dropped the position in Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan. And totally out of Goldman Sachs.
1: Yeah, so he's betting big on Bank of America, which, you know, being a fellow investor, I don't think I... Like you mentioned, Trey, don't fight the fat, but, you know, don't fight Buffett, too, I want to say. So it's, a, it's an interesting stock, but I don't really know what to make out of it other than Buffett just doesn't know. I think it's the same reason why he sold his airline stocks like there could still be value out there and by the way, the airline stocks soared after that. but I think he just needs clarity right now. I think that's part of it. The other thing is and I'm not definitely not an expert in this this could also be for regulatory reasons. I think he's still allowed to hold s- several banks, but there are some issues there right now the way that Brooks Hathaway has to file is that they're considered an insider. I want to say that they hold something along the lines of twelve percent of Bank of America they can own up to 24.9% of that company. They have to disclose it all the time, but they can do it. And then they will have to register as a banking whole company before they can buy more. So there might also be some regulatory reasons why he's chosen the way he have, and perhaps he needs to pick just one stock. But I'm not 100% sure of, of the regulations whenever it comes to that. All right, so let's hop to the third segment, where we're going to play a question from the audience. And this question comes from Sean. Here we go.
3: Hi, guys. My name is Sean, I'm from the UK, and firstly I want to thank you both for the knowledge that you pass on every week. I'm a fairly new investor and it's helped me learn a lot, so thanks guys. So I have two questions. Firstly, as momentum has been beating value on an investing strategy for some time, how is it actually measured? Are there specific metrics that you follow, and how do you use these metrics to determine your asset allocation? Do you always have a selection of value and growth stocks in your portfolio? Or do you start selling some great stocks when the momentum changes and start allocating money into more value-type stocks, for instance? And my second part of the question is really about diversification. As I've noticed that when the momentum of the market breaks down, it seems that a lot of the time everything comes down in tandem, including hedge-like type bets in gold, etc. So is true diversification actually splitting money between assets like real estate, Bitcoin, physical gold and bonds? rather than sector specifics like industrials, tech, oil, etc. Thanks, guys. It'll be interesting to know your answer. Cheers.
2: So, Sean, I love this question, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I, I want to say I've had somewhat of an epiphany even in the last six months. And a lot of it has come from my discussions with people like Kathy Wood and a few other folks. And what I'm kind of learning, at least about myself, is that my style of investing needs to be more dynamic. And I say that because I believe that the current market is more dynamic than it's ever been. And so when the facts change, my opinion changes. So had you asked me a year ago or six months ago, I probably would have told you that I'm a hardcore value investor and I rarely look at momentum. I think that's still true. But when I've been describing this to people, the best analogy I can kind of come up with is that given my background used to be in music. And I kind of reference that a lot because it's my point of reference. So if I'm talking about music and being an artist in music, I would probably listen to a wide range of music, right? Whether it's folk, blues, whatever. And if I were going to write my own music, it would probably incorporate some aspects of all of that. Now, I could be a folk singer and just be a hardcore... Folk singer, right? But that's not been my style. I typically I listen to a wide range of music, and so therefore, if I were to make an album, you'd probably hear elements of all different types of music, all sort of aggregated or combined together. And that's how I'm kind of looking at my investment style right now. So, to be honest with you, given the current market conditions, I'm pretty heavily weighted in some in commodities and Bitcoin. I'm probably what you would call irresponsibly long, even on Bitcoin. And then on top of that to Stig's point, I do have some positions in Visa. I do think the fintech space is going to be disrupted. My play has been in Visa so far in Square. I'm heavily invested there. And I think that's very different than what my portfolio would have looked like even a year ago. And it's mainly going back to something that I was talking to Kathy Wood about, mean reversion. Right? With value investing, mean reversion was a very almost predictable cyclical thing. But with the new economy and the disruption taking place and the innovation taking place and things like the cloud and the internet really taking off. And it's just provided a lot of gray area for me. So I'm still trying to figure it out for myself. I would just tell you that the bottom line here is that I've learned that you can be more flexible. And maybe that's bad advice, Stig. You correct me if I'm wrong, but Stig might have a different opinion from me on this. But what I'm trying to say here, I guess, is that I think the market is more dynamic than ever, and so my philosophy is to try and be as more flexible than I've ever been.
1: I think it's interesting that we Trey met at the Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholders meeting, and there was definitely not a lot of talk about Kathy Wood type of stocks. I don't think anyone mentioned Tesla. We would probably be shunned from that gathering if you said something like Tesla. Like that would be a curse word. And I, I don't have any position in Tesla for that matter, but. I think you're right that the market dynamic... And I came to think of one of the most prominent value investors, Howard Marks, here recently in his memo, which is just amazing resources, his memos. But he talked about how he are naturally skeptical about new things happening because he's a value investor. And that is his strength, but it's also his weakness. But what you're also saying, Trey, is that you're doing that too. You're looking at Stocks that someone like Warren Buffett typically wouldn't be investing in—is that because your circle competence is just different? Is that just because you're seeing market in perhaps a more it's called it a modern light, or is it simply because a guy like Warren Buffett, being a true value investor, probably feels that there's going to be a major mean version? This is just something that would pass.
2: Yeah, well, to that point, I just want to highlight something for everybody. Warren Buffett is the first person to tell you that value investing is redundant, right? (laughs) What we're talking about here is investing. And I just think that people get a little too dogmatic in which lane they stay in and, hey, I am this kind of investor. And I, I actually think that that might be a mistake, especially with the dynamics at play in the current economy. We've never seen this level of involvement from our Federal Reserve, for example, and this amount of stimulus and this type of economy and these dynamics with the once-in-a-hundred-year virus, I mean, these are different times. And I know that history repeats itself or rhymes at least to some degree, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that what we're talking about is investing. And that just means that I'm putting money out now to get more money in the future. What I'm kind of trying to highlight here is that I recently tweeted about this and the idea was investing is everywhere. I mean, hiring a new sales team is investing. Building a gigafactory in Berlin is investing. So to me, I try not to get wrapped up in the labeling. If I'm a value investor, I really just look at that like, hey, I'm an investor and I'm going to invest where I think the biggest return or the biggest yield is right now. Otherwise, I'm just weighing out opportunity costs and reallocating to different buckets based on that.
1: So Sean, you might be sitting out there and thinking, weren't they supposed to answer my question? And <laughs> and so let me try and actually go back to your question. And uh, we do apologize, Sean. We're going back and forth here. There's so many things to unpack. And so to the first part of your question about managing a momentum strategy, and again, to Trey's point about not saying, this is momentum, and this is value, or this is growth. But if we stay within the more classical definition of that, as you mentioned, Sean, momentum has outperformed value dramatically over the past decade. And this is not surprising since we are in a bull market. Momentum strategy is just typically doing better whenever you are in a bull market per se, but in particular, in recent times, momentum strategy has just performed really, really well. So just a quick reminder for those of you who are not completely familiar with what I mean whenever I say momentum strategy, that is buying the best performing stocks regardless of the fundamentals. So it's really just a question of buying something that's going up, and then whenever they're not performing well, you have to sell them off, and then you invest in the newest. Price performing stocks. If you want to do a momentum strategy, the best way to do it is through an ETF, simply due to the tax efficiency. Don't try it and figure out, oh, Tesla now you know went up twelve percent. Let me just ride that momentum. From a tax standpoint, it's just too difficult to do that. And I wanted to mention that, and then I wanted to say that the most popular momentum ETF, if you are US based and you only want to invest in US stocks, that is the stock picker MTUM. I personally invest in XDEM since I live in the European Union, which is a global momentum fund. But the principle is really the same. It's all about the price action. So going back to Trey's point about like how dynamic is the market, what are we seeing in the market right now? To me, it's too hard to know if momentum will continue to outperform value. If you force me to choose over the next 12 months, I'll probably say momentum for the sole reason that there is momentum behind momentum right now. Because with the excessive money printing we have right now, yeah, the answer is most likely yes. But really, as a segue into your second question about diversification, you know, I still own a value ETF. Guessing what the stock market will do in the short term to me is just too difficult, and I can easily see the stock market decline. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? We might see a new mutation and. The vaccines doesn't work then, or whatever. Like I don't know what's going to happen. And again, if we do see a bear market, at least traditionally we've seen that stocks traditional perform better that are characterized as value stocks. And the other thing I just want to say is that there have been a lot of bashing on traditional value investing picks. But keep in mind that with everything that's happened here with the coronavirus, this is not a normal crisis. If there's such a thing as a normal crisis, like value stocks, you know airlines or railroads or whatever you want to mention, value is just much more exposed to a complete lockdown of society in a way that we've just never seen before. You cannot compare this to what happened in 2000 or in 2008 at all, which is really why value has underperformed to that extent. Yes, a whole value ETF, but also a whole momentum ETF right now.
2: Yeah. And I just want to highlight too, Sean, that a lot of this has to do with interest rates, right? Because if inflation does start to creep into the market and interest rates do begin to go up, then I think that at least the growth stocks that we've been used to performing or outperforming over the last decade will probably be the first to take a hit, right? Because basically the higher the interest rate goes, that becomes the new discount rate that's used. And when you're not a profitable company, it gets a lot harder to justify the really astronomical prices that we're seeing. So I would start there. I think, you know, as interest rates start to rise, and that's something I'm watching really closely, I would then shift more to a value-based portfolio. And it's mainly tied directly to the interest rates. So Sean, what I would tell you is that momentum is not how I approach investing. It's probably the last box I check before I go into a pick. Going back to the idea of just simply laying out money now to get more in the future, I do my due diligence on a stock I really try and develop the narrative around the free cash flow and project that out into the future. And then the last thing I do is typically check momentum. It doesn't make or break my investment decision. If I do see that it's become green recently and in a positive trend, then that's a good thing that might even further give me conviction into the pick, but it doesn't really dictate how I invest. What I would tell you though is that I'm really watching interest rates carefully because with the risk of inflation really creeping up. In the near future, potentially, my growth kind of picks that I might be looking at now, I would be more skeptical of, mainly because as interest rates rise, that becomes a new discount rate. And companies that are not producing free cash flows or not profitable will probably be the first to take a hit. And that environment of higher interest rates, we've seen value type stocks outperform. So if anything, my portfolio might shift more to a, I guess you would call a value type of portfolio, but it would be mainly Derived around the opportunity costs with the interest rates.
1: So, Trey, let's talk about discount rates. I'm very curious to hear how you're seeing this. We have guests here on the show, primarily on the Wednesday show where Preston talks about Bitcoin, who talks about the expansion of the monetary baseline, typically referring to as M2. They're saying that you know, if that's 15%, you know, that's our discount rate. Or they might even say that's our inflation. And now you talk about what's happening with the interest rate you're talking about, it might be, say it's zero and you're looking, is it going up to 1%? Like, What is your discount rate whenever you value different assets?
2: That's a good question. What I just said might sound like I own a lot of growth stocks, which I really don't. So interestingly enough, I was just talking to Joel Greenblatt about this, and he said his benchmark, no matter what the environment is, is 6%. And I found that to be really interesting. And the way he's looking at it is the hurdle rate he's trying to get over for his investments. I have a pretty aggressive hurdle rate, if that's how we're thinking about it. My typical hurdle rate is 15 to even 20% sometimes, but it really has nothing to do with the M2 money supply. It's basically just looking at the hurdle rate that I want for my investment returns. When you're in a bull market, especially like this, where you can find opportunities that are yielding 50% a year, I think even 15% is somewhat conservative, honestly, uh, which might sound crazy. But In this type of environment, I'm looking for a much higher hurdle rate than I might be if there was a higher interest rate environment moving forward.
1: Thanks for your feedback on that, Trey, because to me, it's been quite difficult to figure out what should my discount rate be. You know, we both follow Warren Buffett and we heard him talking about using the 10-year treasury. And so whenever the 10-year treasury is like 1%, like what do you do? Because if you do the math, it's just astronomically high valuation, and that's probably not the way to go about it.
2: Well, I want to touch on that, right? Because- Buffett has also said that if he were managing a million dollars, his hurdle rate, I mean, he said this indirectly, but it was basically 50%, right? (laughs) Because he was basically saying, look, if I had a million dollars, I could produce 50% a year. Maybe that's his hurdle rate necessarily, but that kind of tells you with smaller amounts of money, which is what I have, I'm expecting more aggressive growth.
1: Yeah, and I'm with you, Trey. If I had to answer my own question, what is my discount rate? to me, that's just such a tricky question right now. I wish I could just look up the 10-year treasury and say, oh, this is my rate. Warren Buffett was asked about this during one of the annual shareholders meetings. And he said that if it was very, very low, and I think he probably said this back in 2007, 2008 or something. So the treasury rate was definitely much higher than it was today. But he said, you know, we can't do zeros. I just have to use like a higher number, regardless. And I don't know what that number is. Like you, Trey, I'm not looking at M2 and saying, well, you know, if it's spend by 15 or 20%, that's what I'm going to use. To me, I'd say it doesn't make that much sense to me. That's not the type of inflation I'm seeing right now. Also, I don't believe in the narrative that tech is going to disrupt everything. And if you're not growing with, call it 15 or 20%, you don't have a business anymore. That's not how I see things. I understand the tech people saying that's the world, and that's how I see it. I understand the argument, but I just see it differently. If I said it's clearly higher than 0%, but it's lower than 15, I think it's probably too vague of a response. But I, I think it's, you would be doing yourself a disfavor if you said, oh, it's like 6.78. Like I think that would be too tricky. And I think it's just more about understanding what is going on in the market more than anything else. Having said that, I just want to quote Charlie Munger who said, if you're not confused, you don't understand what's going on right now.
2: I would challenge you on that a little bit, Stig, only because I'm just really fascinated by that. Because to me, the discount rate is the hurdle rate. So if you're going to lay out money, you're saying, look, if I'm going to lay out this money, I want this percent return. So it's interesting that yours might be fluctuating depending on the pick. So you're like, I'm looking at Bank of America. I'm interested in it because I think I can get 12%. But over here, I'm looking at Visa, maybe I can get 15% there. You're not sticking to a fixed discount rate. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. I think that it's all about staying within the circle of competence. If I were to invest in something I don't understand as well, in, I would just need a higher margin of safety. And you know how it is with math. Like If you use a lower discount rate, you will come up with a higher valuation and vice versa. So that's really the reason why I'm doing that. But you are right. Like you could be saying across all assets I'm going to use the same discount rate. What is most attractive to me? And I think that's also what I'm doing. And that's also one of the reasons why I'm still focusing on let's call the traditional value picks. Like to me the thesis about if you were to live in a world where you have to grow your company at least fifty percent or twenty percent in fiat currency terms, like you would only have big tech companies left. And you would have changing companies, you know, all the time because Those tech companies who before grew with like 20, 50, 100%, they won't continue to doing so. And we'll just have a a whole world of tech companies that will change every three or four years. So It might be oversaturating a bit, but that's not how I'm seeing things at all. I see we have current market conditions right now where given that this specific type of virus that we have, given this specific type of printing that we have right now, we see tech companies do really well. I don't know how long this printing is going to continue. And I see us change environment. I'm not saying we'll come back to this is going to be 2017 or this is going to be 2005. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we have ideal terms for tech companies right now to perform really well. The market has realized that, which is also why Tesla is the fifth most valuable company in the S&P 500. And someone like Kathy Wood would know a lot more about Tesla than me. She still feels that there's has some runway and will continue to go up. The market knows that these are ideal times for tech companies. And that's also why a company like Apple, which is, you, know, you might even call it consumer goods and not a tech company anymore, like depending on how you define it, is trading at 40 times earnings. To me, it's already been priced in, And I don't know, it might be priced more than in, which is why I still go with traditional stock picks. I still have a value ETF because I believe in that mean reversion. Tech stocks are doing great. But the question is, will they be doing great compared to the current valuation? And of that, I'm not too sure of.
2: Well, I think this actually ties in really nicely with the debate over being highly diversified or being highly concentrated, also. Because the other epiphany I've had in the last year is I used to take a very diversified approach to my portfolio, and I just wasn't seeing the movement I was really expecting. Again, I'm starting with a pretty small portfolio. And in the last year, I decided to switch up my strategy and decided to start going big into my high conviction bets. And so my portfolio over the last year has become much more concentrated, as I kind of alluded to earlier. And I think that goes hand in hand with what you're talking about, Stig, because if you're like, hey, tech stocks are the only things yielding 20%. Well, I mean, in this environment, my portfolio might take the shape more allocated to something like that in a more concentrated way, wherever the yield is that I can expect that's just how I'm approaching it now. I think my opinion would change once I get to a certain scale and I'm just looking more to not lose money and and protect what I own, I'd probably move into a more diversified model at that point. But I do want to kind of speak to that because I think it's another ingredient here to what we're talking about.
1: I don't necessarily know which asset class is going to do best. I want to say that what I'm quite sure of is for most retail investors, it is going to be the asset class who's going to determine how well you perform, not necessarily the individual stock picks. And I also want to say that you should be in the antithesis of cash right now. We can make arguments why you should be in commodities. We can make arguments why you should be in stocks. I think most people are probably in agreement that we shouldn't be in long-term bonds right now, but like, you should not be in cash right now. Whether or not you think that the money printing we're seeing right now is reflected into a higher inflation number the opinion that the CPI is understated and we have a lot more inflation than what the official number are seeing. Even if you disagree with that statement and you still use CPI as your measure, you would probably still not like to be in cash right now.
2: I agree 100% with you, Stig. I'm fully allocated myself, so I definitely am with you there. So Sean, we just covered a lot of ground. I hope you got something useful out of that. And since you asked such an amazing question, we're going to offer you a free annual subscription to our TIP finance tool. As well as our intrinsic value course. And if you're listening along right now and you haven't checked out those resources, you can Google TIP Finance and it'll pop right up, or you can go to tipintrinsicvalue.com for the course.
1: All right, guys, so we really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Trey and I have sure had a lot of fun, and it's always fun to speak to Trey and especially about the current market conditions. It's the first we've done this type of episode together, and we hope to make many more. If you're listening to this and you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Make sure to subscribe to the feed on whatever podcast app you're using—Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever that is—and if you do, Trey and I have our episodes going out every weekend. It's typically more traditional value investing, but even also interviews. For instance, with Kathy Wood, Trey have a great interview coming up with June Greenblatt. So it's a lot more—that's called traditional the traditional—we still billionaires content. And whereas Preston every Wednesday is talking about Bitcoin. But guys, that was all that Trey and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to the Investorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors
3: Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.